Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Robo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which we play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, we will be discussing Montezuma's Revenge. Do you know what the main character's name in Montezuma's Revenge is, and what he was named in the original version? Listen to this episode to find out the answer to these questions. Before we get started with this episode's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy Headlines. Right off the bat, I want to welcome back Earl Evans and his new co-host, Todd George. Uh, Earl Evans does uh, Retro Bits podcast. He contributes to the Retro Computing Roundtable. And he started, uh, I believe a year or so ago, a show called Chicken Lips Podcast, which was going to be all about uh, Commodore computers, not just the Commodore 64, but the entire line of Commodore computers. So everybody was excited when he released the first episode, and then it went radio silent for a long time. But just a couple of days ago, episode two popped up on my podcatcher, and I listened to that, and I was very excited to see that. Um, like I said, Earl has picked up uh, Todd George as his co-host, and uh, Based on episode two that I just listened to, he sounds uh, uh, like a guy who really likes Commodore computers, and I'm really excited to have another Commodore-based podcast out there. So welcome back, guys. Uh, we are we're definitely glad to have you. We still have a long way to go until there are more Commodore podcasts out there than Atari or Apple ones, but, uh, uh, you know, I think um, what was once serious rivalry <laughs> maybe between the eight bit computers is now a little bit more, uh, fun ribbing between old computer guys. Uh, I definitely listen to the Atari podcasts, uh, that are out there, the Apple podcasts and the Commodore podcast. So I'm just glad to have, uh, other computer fans out there talking about these great old computers. So again, welcome back chicken lips podcast. Uh, that makes, um, we have chicken lips uh, we have the amigos, the Amiga podcast and Sprite Castle. And there are lots of Commodore podcasts out there in German and a couple in Spanish, but I think those are the big uh, English based ones. So speaking of the Amiga and the uh, Amigos podcast, there is a new piece of hardware out there that I just found out about today. I don't cover a lot of Amiga news, but this one kind of had me excited. It is the AMIV. I guess that's the AMIV 2.0. It is a, uh, Amiga 2 HDMI adapter. Uh, one of the biggest hurdles that Amiga users have, or at least that I ran into, is that the Amiga outputs video at 15, uh, I'm going to screw this up, kilohertz, megahertz, uh, I, I should just do mumble hertz, uh, 15 megahertz. Um, and um, uh, this creates a problem because uh, most, unless you have a multi-sync monitor, you won't be able to display that on a normal monitor, a LCD monitor, a television, anything like that. Uh, so getting, uh, you know, hooking up a, a vintage Amiga to a modern monitor or a modern television is a, a real pain in the butt. And so uh, anyway, uh, someone has come up with this new device, this AMIV 2.0. It looks like it's still in the beta. 
Uh, on the website, he says that it works with the Amiga 500 and the 1200, but it has not been tested with NTSC. So I know that will be uh, of interest to a lot of retro computing fanatics. I will add a link to the website and to a YouTube video which shows the device in action. So I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, let's see, what else? The big Commodore game story of the week was the discovery and release of Daffy Duck and the Great Paint Caper. Now, uh, if you don't follow, there's a website called gamesthatweren't.com. It's just like it sounds. And Games That Weren't tracks down games that were supposed to be released, uh, maybe games that appeared at computer conventions or uh, were reviewed by magazines, things like that, but never made it to store shelves. Uh, that's that's why they're games that weren't. And one of the first games they started trying to track down, and I believe this was back in 1997 when they first tried to uh, track down this game, was uh, Daffy Duck and the Great Paint Caper. Now, that game had been developed by High Tech Software in 1992, and a copy, a playable copy, was sent to Zap Magazine for review, and Zap Magazine gave it a 95% out of 100, so that's a really good rating. So people were uh, really excited about this game, and then it never came out. And what happened is uh, high-tech software went out of business. There were some other companies, I think Codemasters maybe bought some of their uh, uh, IP that they had already developed, but they didn't want to purchase the games that um, uh, had licensed characters, uh, like uh, a Daffy Duck, you know, was a, a licensed character from Warner Brothers, uh, because it would be more expensive. So uh, no, no copy of this game survived. There were rumors that a small number had been produced, but apparently uh, that wasn't true. So I will add a link in the show notes if you want to go read the entire story. It's very interesting. Um, but basically, to summarize it, the guys behind the website, gamesthatweren't.com, tracked down the two programmers of the game. Uh, and one said that he had given away all of his Commodore 64 discs years ago. And the other one said that he didn't have any copies of it. Well, it turns out that the guy that had got rid of all his discs had actually archived some of the, the data from the game and given a copy to uh, the other programmer, but he just didn't uh, recall having those. So um, the, the guys behind the website got together, they archived all their discs and they found not the game, but they found the source code. They found uh, the original artwork and, and some of the code and this and that. And so they sat down and basically rebuilt this game uh, and put it out as a final version now. So it took, um, you know, 23 years Basically, uh, it was um, uh, supposed to be released in 92, and this is 2015, so it took 23 years to get completed and released. But uh, finally, the game is out there, and you can download it play it. So that's a, it's a really incredible story if you go through and read that. And the game looks and plays and sounds fantastic. It's really uh, a quality Commodore 64 release. So again, that's uh, Daffy Duck and the Great Paint Caper. Uh, also, on the games that weren't website is another game this week called nuclear Nick, uh, which has been missing for 30 years that, uh, someone recently just tracked down, uh, and released. So, uh, that, and that's a great website. You can just go click on different titles and read, uh, the stories behind some of these games that just went missing over time. And it's, uh, uh, pretty interesting, pretty interesting stuff. 
Uh, let's see. Over the last uh, week or so, there's been several Commodore 64 games uh, released. There's uh, this is uh, there's several Commodore uh, game competitions going on right now. So there's a, a couple of different adventure games. One called uh, Awakening. There's one called Kevin in the Woods, and then one that looks really good. I haven't got to try it yet. Called Karen and the Tangled Tentacle. So I will add download links uh, to all these. I'll put them in the show notes, and uh, you could go try them out for free. Again, uh, it, what a what a awesome time that we live in right now, where people are still making brand new software for this old computer, uh, and most of them, you know, go out there for free, and you can just download it and play it on an emulator. If you have ways to convert it over to real discs, uh, you could play them on a real Commodore sixty four. It's just a really fun time right now. Uh, also, Hackersoft. Uh, who teams up with CIA to release his Crazy Hacks released, uh, a crazy hack of Quick Draw McGraw, which is funny because that's another, uh, I believe that's another high-tech release, the same as the uh, Daffy Duck game, with uh, seven cheats built into this one. So if you want to go check that out. Uh, lots, lots of cool stuff this week. Let's go ahead and jump to the King of the Castle. The king of the castle this week is Jim Fullerton, who correctly guessed last week's song was Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Now that uh, a lot of people, I think I may have thrown some people off by throwing in a Jimi Hendrix song. But uh, if you know your wrestling history, you know that uh, Voodoo Child was actually one of Hulk Hogan's uh, ring entry music songs or whatever, uh, his theme music when he used to come down into the ring. So that's why I, I threw that one in there for uh, uh, Micro League Wrestling. So anyway, congratulations to Jim Fullerton. You are this episode's King of the Castle. If you'd like to be the next episode's King of the Castle, all you need to do is correctly identify the secret 8-bit song played during the show's closing credits. The song will not be from the game discussed in this episode, but will relate to the episode's theme in some way. For example, uh, Hulk Hogan's entry music in the last episode. Once you have identified the secret song, the first person to send the song title to me, either through Facebook, Twitter, email, or the show's voice mailbox, will be the next King of the Castle. All those contacts are listed during the show's closing credits. And those are this week's headlines brought to you by my local paperboy, who just ran into one of the tombstones in my neighbor's yard. All right. Boy, what a headache. Now that we've covered this week's news, let's discuss this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. Well, this week we'll be playing Montezuma's Revenge, and I'm sure uh, as every kid learns on the playground, Montezuma's Revenge is uh, a slang for uh, having an upset stomach after eating Mexican food or drinking uh, the water in Mexico. That's as the story goes. And so there's a, a Mexican chain here in the Southwest called Ponchos, and they started in Texas and they've branched out a little bit. And there's a Ponchos in Oklahoma City that has been open for almost 30 years. Now, Ponchos is some of, I don't want to say the worst Mexican food. <laughs> it's like the quality of food. I don't even know that it's as good as, as Taco Bell or any, <laughs> anything like that. Uh, and we, 
used to joke at work because we would go to Poncho's sometimes. Uh, Poncho's is a Mexican buffet. So you, you go through the line and you get anything you want. You get tacos and enchiladas and beans. Uh, and then uh, you go to your table and you sit there and eat. They have a little uh, condiment bar where you can go get uh, you know cheese and salsa and sour cream and things like that. And when you're done, uh, they have a little flag on the table, and you can raise that flag, and the waitress will come around, and and you you just tell her whatever you want more of. Like, I want a couple more tacos, and she'll go get it for you and bring it back. Um, Ponchos is actually featured on King of the Hill, which if you uh, are a fan of, of that show, that takes place in Arlen, Texas. Uh, and uh, so, obviously, uh, the uh, – uh, Poncho's, you know, is is from Texas originally, so it's not surprising. And in fact, in the show, they show them raising the flag to get more things like that. So, so Poncho's is not really good food, but it's kind of a tradition at my work. Especially, we used to send out a lot. Uh, we weren't um, able to leave for lunch for a long time, and so. Uh, not that they, they would let us, it's just, it took so much time. So we would send somebody to go pick up ponchos and I swear you could get enough ponchos. We had about six people and it would cost like $20 to get enough food to feed everybody at ponchos. And we would all eat ponchos and we all loved it. And within an hour or an hour and a half, people started snaking out and going to the bathroom <laughs> and Montezuma would get his revenge uh, through Poncho's fast food. So it was uh, cheap Mexican food. It was good. It was all you can eat. Um, but uh, you always paid the price. In fact, we always used to have a joke. If there was anyone who flew in to our office to come visit us, if they had an afternoon flight, uh, if they weren't very nice to us throughout the week, we would take them to Poncho's for lunch, and then we would giggle uh, the whole afternoon thinking of them getting on an airplane, having uh, just eat Poncho's an hour or two earlier. So anyway, my plan this week was to go to Poncho's. And so we just went to Poncho's the other day. We just drove by there and I drove by and out front is a big sign that says for lease. I was heartbroken. I mean, this is terrible. Uh, Poncho's, uh, I looked it up in Oklahoma city has been, uh, open for 28 years. I mean, this has been a, a staple for a long time. Uh, and I just pulled up, uh, Yelp. And so you can go, if you want to do this, I'm not making this up. You can look for Poncho's Mexican Buffet in Oklahoma City. There are nine reviews. I'm going to read them to you real quick. Uh, number one, Poncho's Mexican Buffet, been around a long time in Texas. When I moved to Oklahoma, I thought, all right, a little taste of home. Man, it was bad. Like having a tasteless frozen dinner. By the way, I'm correcting uh, typos because it actually says tasteless freezing dinner. <laughs> It is nothing like home. Not too clean, but the service was good. Only thing that was, but service alone won't be calling me back anytime soon. Pass, just keep on driving. By the way, there are nine uh, reviews, and the average is one star. <laughs> I'm going to scroll through and see if there's any ones. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what the heck has happened to this place, but yuck. It was gross and dirty, and I almost didn't make it to the bathroom when I got back to work. My dad is no longer allowed to pick. <laughs> uh, Heath says, worst food I have ever eaten. On a scale of 1 to 10, it's definitely in the negatives. Food tasted horrible, cold, and to find hair in the shredded cheese was the killer for two adults and a child. $30 is ridiculous for crappy food. <laughs> uh, let's see. Tylonda B says, 
frozen TV dinner quality food at its best. So papillas are flat and almost gray in color. Even had a second batch requested, and the server said he thought the first one was old dough. Ooh, why did you serve it in the first place then? Second batch wasn't any better. Nicest thing is you could get a full-on lot of crappy food, but for nearly $10 a person, I say spend it elsewhere. (laughs) This is just so funny. I can't stop reading them. (laughs) If I could give them negative five stars, I would. (laughs) I took some friends here just to prove to them that a place existed that had worse food than a homeless shelter. (laughs) I think a fried bologna sandwich would be better than this place. It seriously reminded me of a reheated TV dinner from the 80s. I would encourage people to eat here just to experience what the worst food on earth really tastes like. Well, that's just mean. It's not the worst. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, I think you get the idea of the reviews here. Uh, not sure why I came here. Not much variety at all for a buffet and the chips are stale. Nothing authentic about this place outside of the music. The food here tastes more like a frozen banquet meal from the freezer aisle in Walmart. There's one final review from Hallie C. One word. Ew. (laughs) It's a long word. For some more words. The cheese here is imitation cheese. It tastes like melted yellow candle wax. Also, the meat is nasty. I've tasted better tasting Alpo. (laughs) Why are these people eating Alpo and fried bologna sandwiches? (laughs) I don't know who thought this was great tasting Mexican food, but they obviously didn't have any taste buds or eyeballs. (laughs) I have no idea why I'm putting this in the podcast. (laughs) Nasty food aside, there were flies on the buffet and the pudding cups they had sitting out had skin on top of them, which screams to me that they'd be sitting out for quite a while. The only thing they had going for them was the decor. So I'll give it one star for that. Or should I say, I'll run one star up a little pole for that. All right. Well, I did not have ponchos. I went to another Mexican place and I, I got some Mexican food. I was very disappointed that um, ponchos is gone. And it's probably because all these jerks on Yelp leaving a bad review. So shame on you, Hilly C and everybody else. So thanks for ruining my childhood. Anyway, speaking of ponchos and Montezuma's Revenge, let's get to this week's game, Montezuma's Revenge. Montezuma's Revenge was published for the Commodore 64 in 1984 by Parker Brothers. It is a game for one player that uses joystick controls. The game was originally programmed by Robert Yeager of Utopia Software. Uh, According to an interview with him, his first commercial game was a Pac-Man derivative called Chomper. Then he created a game called Pinhead, which was similar to, he says, the little-known arcade game Kickman. Uh, So anyway, on the original version, it says written by Robert Yeager, concept by Mark Sunshine, copyright 1983, Utopia Software. Mark was his friend, and according to Robert one day, Mark simply said, quote, why don't you make a game with a Mesoamerican theme and call it Montezuma's Revenge? Uh, And so he did. He says Montezuma was a derivative of Donkey Kong and some other games of the time. And uh, based on his comments from uh, his buddy Mark, he sat down on his Atari computer and programmed the game. He took, uh, I should mention that this originally was for the Atari computer. So he sat down on his uh, uh, Atari computer and wrote Montezuma's Revenge. When he was done, he took it to CES, the Computer Electronics Show in 1983, and showed it off there. And that's where Parker Brothers 
bought the rights to the game. Now, the original version of the game was a 48K game, so it was a game designed to go on a floppy disk. Uh, and what Parker Brothers did was took it and stripped it down to fit in 16K so they could put it on cartridges. And they did that for a couple of reasons. One... Uh, was to make the game more difficult to copy, so it was to thwart uh, piracy. And the other reason was not everybody who owned computers back then had disk drives. Disk drives were still pretty expensive, so you could uh, always purchase a cartridge version of a game uh, and play it that way. So that information came from an interview uh, with Robert Yeager by John Hardy, which is archived on the Digital Press website, and I will put a link to that in the show notes. According to Lemon64, Parker Brothers released nine games for the Commodore 64. Those games are Circus Charlie, Frogger 2, Gyrus, James Bond 007, Mr. Do's Castle, Popeye, Qbert, and Star Wars. The earliest of those is 1983, uh, and the last one was in 1989. Now, according to Robert Yeager, the inspiration for this game came from his buddy Mark's comment, and that he started programming this before the release of Indiana Jones. So, according to him, uh, this game was not uh, influenced by Indiana Jones. However, obviously, I would think that uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark obviously added to the popularity of the game if it was not influenced by it. On the front of the game manual, we can see the Parker Brothers logo, and then it says Montezuma's Revenge featuring Panama Joe. So if you did not know the name of the character in the game, it is Panama Joe. Uh, the front of the manual I own says uh, release for Atari 5200 game system, Atari computers, and Commodore 64 disc. It was also released, uh, this. I mean, on the manual, it says for Coleco game system. So on the inside of the manual here, it says Panama Joe. That's what they call him around these parts, though no one knows his real name or where he comes from. Wouldn't his real name be Joe and he's from Panama? <laughs> Sorry. But one thing's for sure, Panama Joe's a daredevil from the word go. No risks too great if the reward's large enough. Winning. That's what's most important to him. And more times than not, that's exactly what he does. Because he's tough, clever, resourceful, and sometimes downright pig-headed, though occasionally ahem, he's been known to get in over his head. Luckily, he's got a knack for getting himself out of hot water as quickly as he gets into it. Let's hope Montezuma's Revenge is one of those times. To help Panama Joe safely reach Montezuma's fantastic treasure by guiding him through a maze of death-dealing chambers within the Emperor's Fortress. Along the way, Panama Joe must avoid an array of deadly creatures while he collects valuables and other tools which can aid him in mastering the evils of the fortress and escaping with the loot. And then on the last page here, there's a little thing I like. It says there's a 100-day warranty. Uh, so if you have a problem with your disc or cartridge, you can mail it back. And after that, you can get a replacement for only $8. Let's talk a little bit about the title screen, which is also the menu screen. It does say Montezuma's Revenge. If you uh, have seen the earlier version, which I believe is only available on the Atari, it will say uh, by Robert Yeager, concept by Mark Sunshine, copyright 1983, Utopia Software. All other releases say copyright 1984, Parker Brothers. 
You can select a difficulty level of one through three. There are nine levels total in the game, but you can only uh, choose to start on levels one, two, or three. You'll have to work your way all the way down to level nine. Controls in the game are pretty simple. You control Panama Joe. You can move Joe in four directions, and the button jumps. If you just press the fire button while you're standing still, Panama Joe jumps straight up. If you're running left or right, he will jump left or right. There are ladders. You can climb up and down ladders. There are poles. Whenever you jump on a pole, you automatically slide down. And there are chains, and when you jump on those, he automatically climbs up. You can. Uh, there are lots of things in this game to collect. You can collect uh, jewels. You can collect weapons, uh, which are swords, basically, and swords are only good for one use. You will encounter skulls and snakes and spiders, and so if you have a sword uh, in your inventory, the sword disappears, as does the creature. Uh, there are amulets. Uh, and if you have an amulet, if you pick one up, no creature can hurt you for a few seconds. I always thought they were microphones. I did not re realize uh, that it's supposed to be an amulet. The little icon looks a lot like a microphone. There are keys, and keys can also only be used one time. There are red, white, and blue keys, and there are red, white, and blue doors. There are torches also that can be uh, collected, and uh, some rooms are in total darkness, but if you get a torch, it will uh, illuminate the room so that you can see where everything is. Now, um, the hard part about this game is you can only carry five things at a time, and you cannot drop things. You can only use them. So uh, if, for example, uh, just making this up, let's say you have five white keys and you run into a red door, and even though there's a red key in that room, you can't pick it up. You can't drop the white key. You'll have to go find a white door to use one of those keys and free up an inventory slot so you can then pick up the red key and go use it on the red door. Now, as far as gameplay goes, uh, this is a very early platform game. Uh, there are several things on each level you will encounter. There are laser gates. Uh, there are conveyor belts. Um, there are floors that appear and disappear. And there are also fire pits that you can fall into. And like I said, the game, uh, there are a total of nine levels. So each level gets more and more difficult. Uh, there are different paths that you'll have to take to get all the way from the top all the way down to the bottom uh, of the maze. There are more dark areas uh, the further you go in the game, and more creatures will appear. Uh, some of the, the levels are everything's changed around. There are more dead ends and things. I will include in the show notes maps for all nine levels of Montezuma's Revenge. So if you uh, have ever played this game and got stuck or you've never played it and you want to see what it looks like, uh, you can go click on one of those links and look at the maps. Again, uh, in the upper left-hand uh, corner of the game is your little inventory window, which will show all the keys, torches, weapons, everything like that that you're uh, currently holding. Uh, and then there are little hats, and that represents how many uh, lives you have, how many Panama Joes you have. On levels one through three, you get an extra man every 10,000 points, and after that, uh, from level 4 on, you get an extra man every 20,000 points. Uh, the score is pretty simple. You get uh, 50 points for every key you pick up, 50 points for every sword you pick up, 100 points for an amulet, 1,000 points for a jewel, uh, 3,000 points for a torch. Then if you kill a skull, that's 2,000 points. If you kill a spider, that's 3,000 points. And you get 300 points for simply opening a door. 
which seems that seems like a lot of points for <laughs> just opening a door. But uh, there you go. Uh, in the original version of this game, there was a end boss at the end of the level, and it was King Montezuma. Uh, you can find this version of the game out there. It is a beta uh, version, and apparently in this version, there is no way to kill King Montezuma, so you can't get past uh, that part of the game. But what Parker Brothers did was they pulled that out, and instead when you get to the end, there's a little treasure room, and you can get as much treasure. Uh, I think of it as kind of like the Mario uh, from Mario Brothers, when you would get the little uh, coin rooms, uh, you get all the treasure you can, and eventually you jump to a pole. You slide all the way down, and you come out where you started, and now you're on the next level. Um, also, in the original version, the working version, Panama Joe was known as Pedro, which is a uh, seems like a perfectly fine name for a, a fellow that's exploring, uh, uh, you know, in Montezuma's Revenge. Uh, but they didn't like Pedro, and so he had changed the name to Panama Jack. However, Panama Jack was a popular clothing line and uh, was trademarked. So they changed it from Panama Jack uh, eventually to Panama Joe. So Panama Joe was originally known as Pedro. Let's talk about game reviews real quick. Zap Magazine rated this game at 83%, uh, which is a pretty good rating. Lemon64 currently has it ranked at 8.3 out of 10, and C64 Games has it as 9 out of 10. So this game gets really high ratings uh, because it's really fun to play. It's easy to figure out how everything works. Um, I think games like this were popular. Uh, any game that you didn't really need the instruction manual for, because a lot of these games were copied um, you know, between friends. They were traded on bulletin board systems. And if you had a game where you had to read 50-page manual to figure out how to do things, um, you know, it may not have been as popular as a game like this where even if you have no instructions, anything, you can give this to a child that understands the basics of video games and he'll be able – he may not be able to, you know, beat an entire level, but he will definitely understand what he is supposed to be doing. This game was ported to lots of different systems. As I mentioned, it was originally uh, developed on and released for the Atari 800, and that uh, not only has the original, but it has that unreleased uh, prototype uh, that you can also track down. After uh, the Atari version, it was ported to the Apple II, the Atari 2600, the Atari 5200, the ColecoVision, the Commodore 64, uh, the PC, and the Sega Master System. The Atari uh, VCS version is graphically probably the the uh, worst of the bunch, but it's still really good. And in fact, it gets really good reviews, and it's very playable, and it's very fun. Uh, I think the uh, the ZX Spectrum uh, originally, uh, or eventually, I should say, got a port, uh, and it's not very good. <laughs> I think it's probably the worst of the bunch. Um, the ColecoVision version also gets uh, pretty low reviews because apparently it uh, runs pretty fast and uh, the collision detection is pretty picky. So uh, I think that's another one that doesn't get as high uh, of uh, a rank. Um, the SMS version, Sega Master System 1, is the last one released. It came out in 1989 and it, uh, it looks great, of course. You know, um, uh, Sega Master System is a, a great system. Uh, later on, uh, 
A sequel was released, Montezuma's Return, that was released for DOS and Windows, and it is a first-person platform game. I don't know how well that works, but uh, if you want to check that out, you can find it. And there's also uh, a version called Montezuma's Return, which was released for the Game Boy and the Game Boy Color. If you want to play this game today, aside from emulation, there is a remake called Montezuma's Revenge, uh, available for the PC and for Windows. Uh, there's also a version available for Android and iOS, which I believe, when I looked it up, cost $2. Uh, that version includes both modern and the retro version of the graphics. There are 99 rooms on those on each level, and there are nine levels, uh, and they have uh, updated music, sound. It has USB keyboard support and TV remote control support. So if you have something like a, a Apple TV or something like that where you can play uh, with your your TV remote, I guess you could do that. Uh, and those are being released by normaldistribution.com, which just happens to be Robert Yeager's new company. So if you want to find the uh, latest version of Montezuma's Revenge, you can go check that out. And now it's time for my personal memories of the game. I first remember Montezuma's Revenge on the Apple II. Um... When we first had our Apple II, we did not have a color monitor. We just had an amber monitor. And uh, the only thing that's slightly difficult is trying to determine uh, the different key colors uh, in a monochrome-type gaming situation. But, you know, there's a really bright one. There's a medium hue, I guess you would say. And then there's a darker one. So it's really not not that difficult to play uh, in amber. But uh, I played it on the Apple II. For sure. And then when we got a PC Junior, I played it on the PC Junior. And then when I got my Commodore 64, I played it on the Commodore 64. And I don't really remember any one version being that much better or worse than any other version. Uh, obviously, I like the Commodore version, but uh, the Apple version is very good. The uh, version that we played on the PC was really good. Uh, it's just a good game, and it's simple enough where uh, it was early enough, I guess you would say, that it doesn't require um, – it doesn't really push any of these machines to their uh, full potential, so it's pretty similar on all these different platforms. Uh, I guess one thing I always kind of secretly enjoyed about this game is that it's not available for the NES. So, uh, you know, the NES had Super Mario Brothers, and so my friends that were Nintendo heads, uh, they would say, you know, oh yeah, you got all these games for your Commodore, but you don't have Super Mario Brothers, and that that was like that was their. Uh, you know, sticking point <laughs> for us, but, uh, but we did have games like this. And so, uh, I mean, if you want to put this head to head against super Mario brothers, I don't know that you can do that. I think, uh, you'll find a lot more, uh, fans of Mario than fans of Panama Joe out there, but, uh, it's still, it, it's a very serviceable game. I really do like it. Um, and like I said, it's, uh, it's enjoyable. It's simple to play. Uh, and it's, it's still challenging, you know, when you, you're trying to figure out what the AI is doing, the different, um, uh, spiders and, and uh, you know, which way things are going to move and stuff. It's still fun to play. So, uh, so I still enjoy this game. For graphics, I give Montezuma's Revenge three out of five rolling skull heads. Everything here looks 
uh, nice. It certainly doesn't push the graphical capabilities of a Commodore 64, but every, all the graphics are uh, crisp and, and clear and neat. For music, I give it a one out of five rolling skull heads. There really is no music here to speak of. And for sound effects, I give it three out of five. Again, there aren't that many sound effects here, but the ones uh, uh, that you do hear are adequate. But for overall gameplay, I give Montezuma's Revenge five out of five rolling skull heads. This is a definite must-play. If you're not a Commodore fan, if you like uh, one of the other systems that I mentioned, I would track down the port uh, and play it on whatever system that you want to play it on. It's definitely a fun game. Uh, I've played it for a long time, many, many, many years. I've never beat the game. Uh, there's uh, just a challenge uh, you know, level that gets harder and harder, and uh, it's just more and more fun. And, and never feel like this game is being unfair. You always feel every time I die, I feel like I screwed up, not that the game screwed me. So uh, that's always something I look for uh, in a great game, and Montezuma's Revenge is definitely a great game. tuning into Sprite Castle. The next game I will be covering is 1985's The Goonies by Datasoft. If you'd like to play The Goonies before the next show is released, head on over to SpriteCastle.com and click the downloads link at the top of the page where you can download Commodore 64 emulators and all the games that have been reviewed on the show. If you'd like to send me feedback about this or any other episode of Sprite Castle, you can email me at RobOHara at RobOHara.com Contact me on Twitter at Commodork Follow the show on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Sprite Castle or leave me a voicemail on the FLAC podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. Sprite Castle is available from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, the SpriteCastle.com RSS feed, and through throwbacknetwork.net, your home for quality retro podcasts. To hear more podcasts from me, check out You Don't Know FLAC, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness. You can find links to all these shows at robohara.com forward slash podcasts. Many of the news articles and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore is Awesome, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. For links to these and more websites, check out the list of links on the right-hand side of SpriteCastle.com. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to searching for TP for your bunghole, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle.